0: On October 7th, 2001, the United States began an invasion of Afghanistan. On August 30th, 2021, the United States withdrew its last troops from Afghanistan. Were we right to go in? Were we right to get out? General H.R. McMaster and military historian Victor Davis Hanson, Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. General H.R. McMaster served in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. During the Trump administration, he served as National Security Advisor. Now a fellow at the Hoover Institution, General McMaster is the author of the classic work, Dereliction of Duty, Johnson, McNamara, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies That Led to Vietnam. General McMaster's most recent book, the paperback edition of which is just about to be published, battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. Victor Davis Hanson, a classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution, Dr. Hanson is the author of many books, including the classic study, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War, Dr. Hanson's newest volume, which will be published this autumn, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor H.R., The Wall Street Journal, Monday, August 30, quote, a U.S. military C-17 carried the last American troops out of Afghanistan on Monday, marking the formal end of the longest war in U.S. history, but leaving behind between 100 and 200 Americans and tens of thousands of America's Afghan allies to face a future of uncertainty and danger, close quote analysis in a moment, but first immediate reaction. What did you think the moment you heard that this withdrawal was happening so quickly and in such, what's a neutral way of putting it, disorder? HR? Well, uh, Peter, it's great to be here with you and Victor even to talk
1: about such a somber topic. I, I mean, I was not surprised at all, right? I mean, this is what happens when you surrender to a terrorist organization. And I think there are those in our, in our government who believe that there are no consequences for a lost war. What's astounding to me is this rationale that we had to leave on the timeline that we gave to the, you know, to the Taliban. Uh, and, and in so doing, uh, it, we could reduce risk to our servicemen and women. Of course, 13 were killed in a mass murder attack that killed hundreds of Afghans just a few days before this. But we were doing so, so we reduced risk to servicemen and women, but we were leaving civilians, American citizens behind. And I think that number that that was quoted in that article is actually quite low for the number
0: of American citizens who were left behind. Victor, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, earlier this week, this is testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we, that is the Biden administration, we inherited a deadline that is, from the Trump administration. We did not inherit a plan. Had President Biden not followed through on his predecessor's commitment, attacks on our forces would have resumed, close quote. Victor?
2: Well, that was a very self-incriminating statement. We inherited a plan, but we didn't inherit what? I mean, he didn't inherit the conditions under which the prior plan said that there would be punitive actions if conditions weren't met. More importantly is they her- inherited a lot of plans. They inherited a plan to secure the border. It was secure. They inherited a plan to have 3 million more bo- b- barrels of oil and gas. They inherited a plan to have ANWR open. They inherited the plan, by the way, of uh, about 2% per annum inflation. So they were very f- promiscuous in getting jets in every plan they got. And they did jets in this plan because whether we like it or not, in a reductionist sense, there hadn't been any but he killed in Afghanistan for one year when he was inaugurated, and he had plenty of time to make a graduated plan. If he wanted to withdraw over two or three years, The could bag them. If that's what he wanted to do, he could have done it, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to get out and have a big parade and say, I, Joe Biden, the understudy and unfairly deprecated Joe from Scranton, I did what George Bush Barack Obama, Donald Trump didn't do. I got out of Afghanistan. I did on September
0: 11th. That's what it was about. It was the original deadline he set was September 11th. HR and, and Victor, both of you. Well, here look, here's a quotation from President Biden in an interview the day before the final American troops departed. Quote, I'm quoting the president. The idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing. I don't know how that happens. Close quote. So, I'd like to come to the analysis of whether the decision was right and wrong. I'd like to discuss our 20 years in Afghanistan, but first as a purely military matter, was he correct? Once the commander in chief gave the order to get out, a certain amount of chaos was inevitable and they did the best they could, HR? No, that's not true. I mean, w- once he said that you can only have X
1: number of troops on the ground, you know, 2,500, and they have to leave on this particular schedule, then then your, 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 your options are, are quite limited. You can't keep Bagram open. Bagram has 78 outposts. You know, it, it has a, a pretty significant perimeter to man and so forth. So, I mean, you, once you give a number and a timeline and that became the mission, then you're going to have catastrophe like we saw. And so what was the mission given? You know, to, to the rest to the government to the government departments and agencies was it to get every american out and do so in good order to get every one of the citizens of our allies our european allies remember america's back right we're supposed to have a, a renewed commitment to to our allies get the afghans out who have worked with us and who will be brutalized and murdered if we don't get them out that was not the mission the mission peter was get the hell out on the timeline i gave you and once you do that that this is what you get. You get a humanitarian catastrophe. You get American servicemen and women killed on the, on the, on the way out. Uh, and, and you have really the, uh, the, the Afghan people really thrust into hell uh, with, with no apparent way to get, to get out of hell. All right.
0: This is how it ended. Let's go back to how it began. 20 years ago, September 11, 2001, almost 3,000 Americans die in terrorist attacks. President Bush demands that the Taliban government of Afghanistan hand over Osama bin Laden and expel Al Qaeda, which was responsible for the terrorist attacks. The Taliban refuses. October 7, with the British, we begin an invasion. December 22nd, a new government of Afghanistan takes office. Time elapsed from the beginning of the invasion. First bombs are dropped again on October 7, new government on December 26th. Time elapsed from the beginning, to the complete overthrow of the Taliban, two and a half months. Again, it will come to questions of policy in a moment. Well, as a military operation, projecting that kind of power to the far side of the world, entering an, one of the most difficult theaters in the world, mountainous, uh, how do you judge that as a military operation, the way it began? Victor? Well, it was brilliant. I was teaching for a year at the Naval Academy that year, and people
2: were giddy in naval aviators for the most part, who were, you know, being guided by people on donkeys. They thought it was the pre-modern and post-modern success story. And they, we had three missions. That's what was announced. Number one was to get Bin Laden, and number two, the government that aided and embedded him, and then number three, to create conditions on the ground which the Taliban are and/or would not come back. So this was in reaction to whack-a-mole during the Clinton administration, where we would just bomb and go home. And everybody was saying, we have, this wasn't nation building, it was just creating a stability that was free of, of the Taliban and uh, Bin Laden. And that pretty much uh, worked. But what happened is over the next 20 years, I think people in the administration and the military did not articulate in the cost benefit analysis and candor to the American people to, make, to let them make that decision. And so what happened?
0: I, I'll, co- <laughs> can, can I come, I'll come to that in just a moment. I wanna yeah. circle yeah. back just, as I say, there's a new government that takes yeah. office in Afghanistan on December 22nd. HR stepped back a couple of weeks earlier. Victor mentioned that one of the stated missions was to get bin Laden. And the, the, what is now called the Battle of Tora Bora takes place from December 6th to December 17th, 2001. We think we've located bin Laden's headquarters. We think bin Laden is there. And before the battle is over, some number of terrorists, including bin Laden, if he was there, escape into Pakistan. Did we miss a chance? If we, it, 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 as I understand it, the general consensus of intel all these years later is that he probably was there. If we had succeeded, was that a botch? Was that a small botch within a, within an otherwise yes, brilliant it operation? It was, and it was
1: it was a result in large measure of the type of campaign we waged. We decided to, to wage a light footprint campaign to rely mainly on courageous intelligence professionals and special operations forces who enabled our tremendous air power to support Mujahideen era militias that were anti-Taliban it was those militias that liberated Afghanistan and, and liberated Kabul and put the Taliban forces and government on the run. Uh, they, they stopped over in Tora Bora on their way to Pakistan, where ultimately they would regenerate. But what we found is that by this over-reliance on militias and not deploying enough U.S. conventional force capability, we had a hammer, but we had no anvil. We had no way to block them from their, their egress in, in, into Pakistan. And this was really a fixation of the Pentagon at this time because of this orthodoxy of what was known at the time as the, the revolution in military affairs, right? And and so we paid a lot of attention to how to unseat the Taliban government, how to defeat their fielded forces, and not enough attention to how to consolidate gains and get to a sustainable outcome in Afghanistan consistent with that third objective that Victor mentioned, which is to ensure that whatever political settlement emerged in Afghanistan uh, could withstand the regenerative capacity of the Taliban and would remain fundamentally hostile to the Jihad, to Jihadist terrorists, in, including the Taliban.
0: All right. So, Victor, back. I've just we've just done a few moments on the first two and a half months. Now we get to this 20 years. Um, 20 years. We stayed there for 20 years. H.R., why? What 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 what, what were we thinking you have said elsewhere it wasn't a twenty-year war; it was a one-year war that we fought over and over again, twenty times. Explain what you mean.
1: Well, we've been in Europe at the end of World War II for almost eighty years, right? We've been in Korea for, you know, for you know, for for seventy years. You know, we have been in Colombia since nineteen ninety-nine uh, with very small forces enabling. Uh, en- enabling the Colombians uh, to combat uh, organized crime networks and drug cartels and insurgent groups, you know. So we've been in the in the Sinai, you know, for you know since the since the 1970s. We've been in the Balkans uh, since the mid 90s. And so, what was required in Afghanistan, because of the regenerative capacity of the Taliban and the resilience of jihadist terrorists who are waging, by the way, an endless jihad a- against us, was a sustained commitment. That would allow the afghans to bear the brunt of the fight and and of course to to have the resilience the strength uh necessary to to cope really with the regenerative capacity of the the taliban that's what we abandoned we abandoned i think because we talked ourselves into defeat right we didn't sustain our will and and a narrative a false narrative about the war really took hold in in the united states that this this uh this was a, a futile endeavor because because yeah, Afghanistan was not yet Denmark, you know? I mean, heck, it didn't yeah. need to be Denmark. So it just figure, needed to be Afghanistan. Victor, here's,
0: here's Lee Smith writing in the tablet. Quote, "The evidence is that our elites sought to graft the effects of a civilization built by and for its own people, us, democracy, a military, a police force, girls schools and so forth onto a primitive society that had to be bribed" To accept what we were offering, close quote. That gets to something I think you were you, you were about to start in on this, Victor, this notion that somehow the original mission was directly tied to obvious American interests, so above all, the defense of this republic. And yet somehow or other it became, it took, it took root in American thinking that it wasn't the defense of this nation, it was building schools for little girls on the other side of the world that we were actually do. What? How did I all this go wrong? How do we get involved in the nation of business well, we all, nation we all, building? Well, we have 150,
2: HR's right, we have 150 plus outposts, bases, whatever you want to call them, all over the world. So Afghanistan was not the abnormality or the aberration. But when we go into these places and we stabilize them temporarily and we have a mission to advance U.S. and our allies' interests, then people say, well, look, this baby has measles. Oh, look, this guy has no teeth. And then it starts to be mission creep. And from 20 years ago, that mission creep reached levels of absurdity. So finally, we, a uh, imperial power who gave up Afghanistan and were leaving in humiliation, were still flying the pride flag. We were advancing George Floyd murals in a traditional pre-modern society. We were bragging on our gender studies. These are the imperial pretensions of a victorious, strong power. They're not something that a power in defeat and humiliation tries to do. So we, we combined the worst of both worlds. We were trying to leave a cultural implant, but without uh, at least manifest military strength. The other thing is, from the very beginning, because of the rapid victory and the brilliance actually in 2001, I think a lot of people thought, you know, Iraq was a bad war and Afghanistan was a good war. But if you just look at it historically, Afghanistan is always much harder than a country like Iraq. It had no middle class, it had no industry, it had no ports, it was landlocked. And we had allies in the Middle East. We had none in that area. And more importantly, we had a nuclear Pakistan right on the border that we didn't know how to deal with. We never understood whether it was an enemy or a friend or what, but it was undermining our efforts and it had strategic deterrence of a sort because it was nuclear. So there were so many things against us, and yet and yet, from 2015, you could argue that the US military was not in a active combat role day to day, it had stabilized things. At least stabilized it in, that had, in the way that Alexander and 200 years of his successors or the British empire after the third, uh, Afghan war, that the plains, the, the cities, the area that you want had been, you know, complacent, and, and uh, I shouldn't say complacent, but compliant rather to what our, our strategic aims were. But if you're going to go into Afghanistan and say it's going to be pretty easy and we're, we're going to have all of these cultural ruffles and flourishes like we did in the end, but you're not going to pay attention first to military uh, efficacy, and that's what we do.
0: We replace the Taliban and kick Al Qaeda out of the country. I'm going back to the three items in the, yeah. in the original mission. That happens in a matter of months.
2: Yeah.
0: It takes a decade. It's 2011 before we get bin Laden, but we do. Yes. And by 2015, that country is, I'm. this is where the question comes, that qu- country is stabilized in as much as it's no, it is certainly no longer a threat to us. So this isn't a 20-year war. It was complicated. It was extremely difficult. But in in something like 14 years, we actually did what we needed to do. Is that correct?
2: Yes, but you're asking me, a civilian military historian, to do something that the military and these administrations did not. So you could have asked that question of George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and especially Joe Biden, and we did not have people Uh, articulating what exactly we want in Afghanistan, what is the cost-benefit analysis in Afghanistan, why we must stay there and do it explicitly. Instead, we had people, even though we had not lost at this point, one American in 16 months, this was just two months ago, that were saying, we're making progress. Progress. That was the word they used, progress, progress, and the other synonym, advancement. This was General Milley. This was Secretary Austin. This was Joe Biden. This was Blinken. This was all of them. And, that, and yet we know at the same time, the President of the United States in a private phone call was saying, even if we don't have progress, would you please basically lie and say we do? So we haven't articulated that mission. And HR is right that we, we've been in South Korea and, and Samsung and Hyundai and that, that, that vibrant economy.
0: But we articulated it. We didn't this time. H.R., I know you, you have answers. To, I'm going to put another couple of questions to you. Once, once it becomes the narrative that we're there to improve life for Afghans, we're not there to defend ourselves. We're there to build a better life for Afghans. Then the whole venture becomes subject to withering critiques of, let me just give you a couple of examples here, on corruption, this is from an investigative report in the Washington Post. A forensic accountant helped analyze 3,000 Defense Department contracts worth $106 billion, $106 billion. The conclusion, about 40% of the money ended up in the pockets of insurgents, criminal syndicates, or corrupt Afghan officials. Close quote. That's over $50 billion in corruption. Here's a. That's one line of attack. Here's another line of attack in the Spectator. On Ivy League campuses, students are taught to decry colonialism, but Ivy League diplomats who sought to remake Afghanistan in Harvard's image were among the most ambitious practitioners of colonialism in world history. Alongside the billions for bombs went hundreds of millions for gender studies in Afghanistan. According to a USAID observer, the gender ideology included in American aid routinely caused rebellions out in the provinces, directly causing the instability America was supposedly fighting. Close quote. Okay, these are the kinds. Now, you've been hearing criticism of this nature for two yeah. decades. How do you? How do oh, you, Peter? Handle- Peter, what you're, I think what you're setting up is a straw man, right? I mean, oh, is? there is there,
1: there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of ground between the ideology of the Taliban, which wants to thrust Afghanistan back into the, you know, to the seventh century, uh, and and uh, and you know this neoliberal ideology that some elements within the U.S. government or non-governmental organizations were trying to introduce into Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not naturally a, a, uh, a, a jihadist, terrorist-friendly place. It really was only became a theocratic dictatorship under the Taliban after a destructive civil war from 92 to 96. And then, of course, the Afghan people suffered tremendously from 96 to 2001 under Taliban rule. The Asia Society has been doing pretty good polls in Afghanistan across the 20-year period uh, since 9-11, and the most support that the Taliban has ever registered uh, in Afghanistan was for 13%. Now, the problems that you identified are problems that were potentially fatal and proved fatal to the Afghan state, and that's the problems associated with corruption and organized crime, but I believe that those problems were enabled mainly by our short-term approach to a long-term problem in Afghanistan. And the the way this this occurred is that we kept telling, of course, the Afghans, hey, we're leaving. Okay, now we're really leaving. Now we're really, really leaving and here's the timeline for our withdrawal. And what that encouraged is is a hedging uh, behavior on the part of Afghans who then determined to try to build up power bases in advance of a post-American Afghanistan, an Afghanistan that would revert back to the civil
0: war. You know, from ninety two to ninety six, and so or, so then, and that prompted the corruption. Various warlords are trying to steal as much money as they can while the going is good. Roughly, A- absolutely,
1: and they became stakeholders in state weakness because it was the weakness of state institutions that gave them impunity. And the political settlement, actually, in Afghanistan, again because we're leaving, became wholly reliant on unchecked criminality, because when when uh, Hamid Karzai, you know, looked over his shoulder and said, "Who's got my back?" Nobody. He cut deals with the Mujahideen era elites, and in exchange for their fealty, he gave them license to steal. So it was our lack, really, of diplomatic and political engagement, uh, and and a commitment to a, a small-scale sustained effort, that led to this self-destructive behavior on the part of the government, or exacerbated to the degree that it was potentially fatal to the Afghan state, and and, and the, the the organized crime activity in Afghanistan. Was pr- was primarily politically motivated. Now, this is not without precedent either in in post-conflict scenarios. You know, the the, the government of Sigmund Rhee in South Korea uh, after 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 the Korean War in 1953 was was profoundly corrupt, and uh, and uh, and and you know that was a pretty dire situation, right? Where you had a company that been a, co- a country that been ravaged by decades of war and brutal occupation. You had really no natural resources at all in the country, not even a tree had been left standing after the Japanese uh, the Japanese occupation. You had an, an illiterate population and a hostile neighbor, and as I mentioned, a, a corrupt government. And it really wasn't, people forget this. I mean, it really wasn't until the economic reforms in the 1970s that South Korea really began to take off. And then the governance reforms in the 80s. It took a long time, right? There are no short-term solutions to long-term problems. And what happened in Afghanistan? Is our short-term approach actually lengthened the war
0: and made it more costly. Victor, here's Donald Trump. He hears the criticisms that I, and of course he has, for at least a time, he has H.R. McMaster as his national security advisor to say, now, Mr. President, listen to the other side. But here's Donald Trump. So wait a minute, gender ideology, our people have been imposing gender ideology on them $40, $50 $40, 50000000000 billion dollars in corruption? Those Afghans are stealing us blind. This is ridiculous. Just get us out. That's understandable, at least, isn't it, Victor? And is, is there something to it?
2: Yeah, the problem, and I agree with a lot of what HR has. but remember, this is not in isolation. We're talking about Afghanistan in terms of NATO, South Korea, deterrence against China, a huge $800 billion, but most importantly a country that now is approaching $30 trillion in debt and had not seen until- Our country. Our country, 2017, uh, a decline in the middle class wages for 12 years and hollowed out. If you go to Youngstown, Ohio or Southern Michigan, that whole area, and I've been through it on car and ridden ridden a bicycle for hundreds of miles the last 15 years, it's, it's devastating and that was part of it, globalization, but the point was there was a large constituency that nobody paid any attention to. And they never said to those people, we are going to spend perhaps a trillion or $2 trillion in Afghanistan. And we're gonna probably give them anywhere from 50 to $80 billion in training and weaponry. And we're gonna do this so that we don't have Bin Laden. Now that is a possible argument, but that argument was never made in that context. So everybody said, The border's open. We've got this huge debt. The middle class is losing, and we're over there. And there's not a good record with the Russians and the British being over there. And we want to know why. And nobody stepped forward and said, this is Korea. This is how we did it in Korea. This is how we did it. And there are parallels, but there's also a lot of dissimilarities. If you look at where Korea is, the South Korea, which, when we went in there, it was to protect Japan, and it was to stop Soviet expansionism that already, during that period, had nuclear weapons. And we had all sorts of concerns about allies from the Philippines to Taiwan to Australia. When you look at Afghanistan geostrategically, you can make the argument that it's important, but for those so-called deplorables in the middle of the country, it's going to be very hard to make the argument that Afghanistan is of their strategic importance. And, and at a time when this country's been hollowed out. And so what I'm getting at in a windy fashion is that's what Donald Trump was saying. He wasn't just saying, well, look at Afghanistan, Where, where's the beef, what's going on? He said in the larger pictures of things, this is not United States of 1965 or 1970 with 6% GDP growth and a booming economy. This is a country deep in crisis. And, and he wasn't necessarily wrong because remember, while we were in our last throws in Afghanistan, General Milley testified before Congress that the chief worry that he had along was white, white rage. He wanted to understand it. This crackpot theory that I found in Professor Kendi's works that you can be racist to be racist and dimis- discriminate. And what I'm getting at is what did those people think like that? They thought this. If you look at the people killed in Afghanistan, over 20 years. Uh, our, people or, or, our people? Our people. Our right. people. And the people in Iraq, about 74% of the deaths in Afghanistan and maybe a little higher in Iraq were of the white middle working classes. Okay. And they they doubled their percentages in the general population. There are about 30% white males are in the population. They were over 70%. I have, I have no problem with this, but this military said to us we're going to be proportionate representational and everything we do this is what i'm quoting almost exactly austin so you go over there and then you're you're hunting out white rage and you're, what you're basically saying to these american families generation after generation who have been the fodder for american wars they fought really hey, hey, hey
1: victor I, i'm sorry i got to tell you soldiers are not fodder okay no but i don't mean no fodder, i know what what I, what I want to tell you is that soldiers don't want your pity and well, I don't, think, I don't think military that. families want your pity. I don't, I'm not
2: giving them their pity. And I'm we don't break you. each
1: other down by identity category. No, we, don't. we all bleed the same color. That's and, what, you know, and you know what soldiers want more than anything, which I think is what I agree H-R, with you most about. I'll let you finish. Yeah.
2: Just let me finish. Yeah. I
1: didn't say that I said that.
2: I said that this military testified before Congress that they were going to be proportional representation and they were going to uh, pursue basically a, way, a woke so I'm not saying this. I don't want to have a military that when we get 13 people dead, somebody in the military said, well, it's time to pull this group back because they're disproportionate. But that's the trajectory that we're going when you're telling the American people that this constituency is guilty of some unspecified crime and you're going to hunt them out and because of a supposed white rage. I, that is what I'm angry about because they think, because I've talked to them, they use the word fodder to me. I've talked to families who've said to me, I sent two kids to Iraq, and now they're thinking that they're suspicious. So what I'm getting at is this military, at the very point that they should have concentrated and focused American attention on this crisis in Afghanistan, what were they doing? They were lecturing the country in congressional testimony about... Professor Kendi, about white, white rage, about white supremacy, about the need for proportional representation. And whether they wanted to or not, they created the image that there was a particular culpable profile. And that profile, and that's what Donald Trump was trying to say, whether it was manipulative or not, he was saying that profile is the forgotten man in the center of the country. And they lose yeah. economically, they lose out of globalization. And now they have fought in a way that's very, uh, uh, they didn't think about proportion, they didn't think about race, they, it was integrated, they had the idea of a melting pot, that race is incidental, but their, their commanders didn't, at least the Pentagon brass, because if you look at the testimony of Admiral Gilday, or if I read you the transcript of General Milley, that's not what they're talking about, that race is uh, incidental, they're talking about it as something essential.
1: And well, what you're pointing out, what I'd like to do is try to connect two streams of this conversation. One, one is one is this idea that that uh, that that identity politics, elements of critical race theory, you know, should be infused into our military. That would have a completely that would have a destructive effect on the essential element of combat effectiveness, which is unit cohesion. But
2: wait, you're using the subjunctive.
1: I'm well, using the well, It hey, already hey, has been. Well, it, well, we have to protect. Our, our warrior ethos a, against these, you know, reified philosophies that tell us not to judge fellow soldiers by their dedication to duty, their willingness to sacrifice, their courage, their toughness, their commitment to one another and to the mission. That's what we judge soldiers by, and that's and and that's essential uh, to combat effectiveness. But the other aspect of I think the warrior ethos that is under risk is the idea that hey, in war. There is no substitute for victory. There is no substitute for winning. And what has crept into our lexicon and been infused into the military in certain quarters well before any elements of critical race theory were terms like responsible end, right? Ideas that these wars are unwinnable. Well, what was winning in Afghanistan? Winning in Afghanistan was a sustainable political order in that country that was hostile to jihadist terrorists. And with Afghan security forces that with a, a very small amount of our support could sustain that effort and bear the brunt of the fight against enemies of all humanity. And one of the straw men I think we're setting up in this conversation is that trillions of dollars, you know, wasted on these, you know, gender programs and everything. Well, look at actually, first of all, the progress that was made in helping Afghanistan just become Afghanistan again, right? The Afghanistan prior uh, to 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 the to the Civil War and prior to to the brutal rule of the Taliban, but but also consider the amount of resources that were being committed toward the end, and I would say even before the mistake to engage in capitulation uh, negotiations from 2019 to 2020, and that was you know, that was a force of about 10,000, yeah. about 2.5 percent of our defense budget, and expenditures of about 22 billion dollars a year. Was so, that sustainable? I I would say. It was sustainable and actually it was sound policy as if you think of it as an insurance policy against the catastrophe we're witnessing now and i just want to point out the person who got us on track for that strategy was donald trump me- because what when we briefed him on all options in 2017 and it was not my job to advocate for any of these i felt as national security advisor i provided the elected president with options and explored the long-term costs and consequences of each. And if you go back to the August 2017 speech, I believe Victor, that was the only time we had in place in Afghanistan a, a sound, sustainable uh, approach to the war that prioritized our interests, right? And 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 would in fact honor, you know, the sacrifices and service uh, of our, our men and women. Um, who fought there for over 20 years. H.R.,
0: can I just, uh, on one, just point second. of clarification, one second. Here. So H.R., are you saying that these reports of $187 billion spent on gender studies and billion, tens tens of billions wasted in corruption, you're saying they're mistaken or that they don't matter no. in the uh, larger no, sa- picture? I'm sa- what, what I'm saying is you're not placing them in
1: context of the sustainable the effort really from 2017 to 2018 to 2019. I think the the, the war, wars, as, as Victor knows better than anybody, right? W- wars do not do not ever appear linear in, in terms of their trajectory. They're based on a continuous interaction, you know, of opposites, to use a Clausewitzian phrase, between our forces and the enemy. And then policies and strategies shift over time. We neglected really what was necessary to consolidate gains in Afghanistan. And then when we woke up to the to the idea, well, heck, we do have to do more. We actually provided a whole bunch of assistance you know with a great deal of enthusiasm and no finesse and we dumped money into Afghanistan well beyond the absorptive capacity of, yes. of, of that country so, and, so we that was wasted, mistake, and we wasted and we wasted billions of dollars absolutely okay. that all right.
2: is all, all right. true all true all but, true can i just say something of course
0: sure sure victor
2: so when you say 22 billion i'm sitting in Fresno county right now and if it does, it hasn't rained since march 9th and if it is dry another year, we're going to have families that have no water, and there's no wells, and that costs about 55000 There's no money. So I'm sitting here with neighbors who are telling me, why can't the government give me a million, $2 million loan for this community? So here you have this imperial, you know, this big military we have, and for years people said, I can pay the NATO budget because I do not want to go into the isolationist mood that caused World War II. I can pay for the Cold War because they have 7,000 nukes pointed at us, the Soviet Union. I can pay for Korea because we know what North Korea is, represents. It's a dagger in the heart of Japan, etc. But when you go to Afghanistan, uh, the, dip, the argument becomes more difficult. And it has to be reiterated constantly. It was not reiterated. So I people, agree with you. I people, agree with you. People were you're saying right. yeah. five, 60, million, $60 million a day. They were saying, this country is not affluent anymore. It's not wealthy anymore. It's racked with social cultural dissension and people are really hurting. And so Donald Trump got elected over 16 professional politicians because for some reason he saw that. Maybe he demagogued or manipulated, but he saw that. And so that's what people were upset. The second thing is this gender studies, George Floyd murals, pride flag. Yes, we fixate, but that was not the beginning that was the end of this entire uh, postmodern experiment in this military. Long ago, when you talk about battlefield efficacy and victory is the, mi- I agree with you, but we heard again and again and again from senior military officials that we don't know how to define victory. I've heard
1: that. Yeah, but you know again. what? You know, you know victory. I reject that. I reject it. You know, I, I, I say, okay, what, what the hell were you doing? What was you? Know, what? Why weren't Tommy you defining victory? That. He, that's right. exactly what he said.
2: I know, I know. I know. But we've and, heard and, and, heard, uh, we heard. We heard. We heard. Proportionate. We don't, we're going to respond proportionate. Never in the history of war has any general said, I'm going to respond proportionally. He's always said, I'm going to respond to aggression disproportionately to create deterrent. So what I'm getting at is this postmodern stuff, the ultimate sick manifestation is what we saw in the last days of Kabul. But come on, this was back way back. I taught the Naval Academy for a year. And I have taught at UC Berkeley for a while. I've been a visiting professor at Stanford. I've been a visiting professor at Pepperdine and Hills. And I can tell you that that was the most postmodern progressive place I've ever taught at, more than Berkeley or Stanford. i taught- I? And, I, and what I'm telling you is this, there's real life consequences when people in the military feel that they are going to project a particular vocabulary and ideology because they feel that it's more conducive, whether to the general climate of the establishment or whatever, but it's antithetical to military success. And that translated insidiously over the years where we did not have people coming back from from Afghanistan and said, this is what we did to the Taliban this year. This is what we're going to do to them next year. We we're going to defeat them. It was never that message. It you was- know, I, I, You
1: know, Victor, Victor I, 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 agree, I agree with you. I agree with you, right? I mean, you know, I you know, I, I believe in the you know the G.K. Chesterton uh, observation on war, right? That it's not the best way of settling differences, but it's the only way to ensure they're not settled for you. And and what what I think is extraordinary is this idea, right? That lost war ha- wars have no consequence. We are about to, to 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 witness even greater consequences, not only the humanitarian catastrophe, but the political catastrophe, and and by the way, the security. Uh, okay. Catastrophe. But nobody, as you said, and I agree with you on this, across three administrations, the leadership of those administrations failed to explain to the American people what they deserved and needed to know about the war in yes. Afghanistan. What is at stake? And what is a strategy that will deliver a, a favorable outcome, win, a winning outcome, consistent you know, with, with uh, what brought us in the war to begin with, right? And, and an outcome that's, that's worthy of the cost and risk. We must address the reality of the world as it exists right now, the threats we face, and the confronting of all of the problems of today, and extremely predictable consequences of a hasty
0: withdrawal. I think your your audience ought to go back and read that. I would. I, I, I what I'm about to say is that, in my opinion, I'm the I'm the supposed to ask questions, not give my opinion. But I'm setting up a question for you, HR. In my view, that was the first time a chief executive gave a full and measured explanation and weighed the costs and benefits of what we were doing in Afghanistan and made a serious a serious attempt at high politics. To explain to the American people a mission vital to the security of this nation and to explain to them the costs involved. First time in I don't know how many years, but in years. Also, though, the last time. And here's you and Victor have fleshed out big themes. I'd like to go to a smaller, just a sort of historical question here. (laughs) You leave the administration in the spring of 2018. Is that correct? All right. That's right. That's right. Hi, Rothstein in the Wall Street Journal. This is about 10 days ago. The U.S. initiated peace talks directly with the Taliban. The Afghan government, America's own creation, was excluded from the negotiations. The U.S. pressed the Afghan government to release thousands of Taliban prisoners. American leaders have been oblivious to their own culpability for undermining the will of the Afghan security forces, close quote. Pressing the Taliban to release prisoners was by President Trump not by President Biden. After you left, I don't want to suggest that you were running foreign policy. You were a loyal servant of the Constitution and the president. But after you left, the speech that he gave, that policy position came unstuck. What happened? Why? Well, it
1: just it turned out to be not sustainable in terms of of our will and and the president's will. And I think a lot of people got in his ear who who, uh, were reflecting the frustrations of uh, of the American people, the the frustrations that but, Victor like, covers so brilliantly right in, in his in his book, "The Case for Trump," I think okay. he lays it out right. What what were the sources of this discontent, and that and that did affect, I think, our our ability to sustain the will. The president didn't really sustain that communications effort with the American public. I don't think our Department of Defense or State officials did either. And so what happened is, you know, we, we lost our will, and this is why I I look at this war as self defeat. We defeated ourselves in Afghanistan. What the Trump administration did with this 2019 initiated, you know, capitulation talks is what they the only way to view them, I, I think, uh, with the Taliban is, the, is they they prioritize withdrawal as an end in and of itself. And they doubled down on the same flaws of the Obama administration. Remember President Obama in 2000, uh, 2010, I think it was, you know, when, when he. When he announced a reinforced security effort in Afghanistan and gave the enemy and the world the timeline for the withdrawal of those troops at the same time, and then said, Okay, now we want to agree with you. This is this postmodernist nonsense that, that Victor's talking about. How the hell does that work? Right. In, yeah. in war, in yeah. war, winning means convincing your enemy your enemy's been defeated. And we're telling him, no, all you have to do is wait us out. But there's one difference,
2: and that is, and I agree, if I, I wouldn't have talked to the Taliban, no way. But here's the difference. During his tenure, he killed Baghdadi. Against a lot of criticism, he killed Soleimani. He bombed the- President Trump and, you're talking yes, about. Yes, he bombed right. the SHIT out of ISIS. Pretty much made the, rendered them combat ineffective. When over 200 Russian mercenaries attacked a U.S. facility in Syria, they killed them all. Whether we like it or not, he project, and he got pretty tough with North Korea. So there was a sense of deterrence that is explicable. I think, why we didn't lose one soldier. And the fumes of that deterrence carried over to Biden. So if Biden had uh, made it very clear that he was unpredictable and he would retaliate, I think even uh, that he could, that the Trump policy was sustainable for two, three, four years. That is a graduated withdrawal with uh, NATO. Remember he had 8,000 NATO troops, which is really ironic since we're always accusing them of being less than stalwart. And uh, so, But he didn't have deterrence. And so finally, they took a long look at him. They looked what he said. They looked what he did. They looked at the people around him, and they thought, you know what? If we do something, unlike a year ago, there's a good chance we're not going to get bombed. We're not going to get attacked. And they tried it, and then they tried it, and they tried it, and they tried it. Deterrence is very hard to create, but it can be lost in a day. And that's what we did. We lost it. And now we've lost it all over. I think we've lost it in a lot of very... Critical places. If you nope. talk to people in Australia or Japan or all world, and I, I, I want to come to the
0: to, to the to the to the strategic consequences. But one more question for HR, well, for both of you, HR in battlegrounds. In your latest book, you quote Clausewitz, the quote nineteenth century military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz observed that the first duty and right of the art of war is to keep policymakers from demanding things that go against the nature of war, close quote. Now you wrote the book, literally you wrote the book on the errors and failings of the American military establishment during the war in Vietnam. If you look back across the long sweep of our involvement in Afghanistan, of course, particularly the last month, but across the long sweep Victor and you, I think, agree. You're in heated agreement in a funny way. Victor and you agree on the political difficulty of sustaining this effort that emerged in this democracy. It's hard to tell people in Fresno who see their fields withering in the sun that that, that there's corruption taking place on U.S. taxpayer money in Kabul. It's hard. Where's the military come in? How is it that Barack Obama is able to establish all these timetables and nobody, no general resigns and says, that's just not the way you do it. You're endangering our troops. How is it that we have a debacle, a debacle? Now there are reports, reliable reports that the Taliban is going door to door in Kabul and yanking people who cooperated with us out and killing, executing some of them. In this debacle emerges and no soldier resigns? Nobody, I, I, I just, how do you evaluate? It seems to me almost crazy making that we thought we'd learned the lessons of Vietnam. Your book, Dereliction of Duty is the title and it's a signed reading for the officer corps in this country and yet this happened. How can that be? Well,
1: I think you have to make clear what expectations are of senior military, right? I mean, the, nobody elects generals to make policy. Right, the the prioritizing withdrawal over getting Americans out in Afghanistan in, in these recent months, that was not a military decision. That was a policy decision. What we don't know yet, what we don't know yet, is behind closed doors, did the military give its best military advice to the Commander in Chief and do so in, in a forceful manner and highlight the costs and consequences of, of taking action counter to that to that advice? You know, the the historian that that I know, I know Victor and I both admire Michael Howard. said the causes of victory defeat of war have to be sometimes have to be found far are found far from the battlefield and and i think that is the case in, in in afghanistan i mean we we know that a sustained military commitment in afghanistan would have prevented this from happening but it was a political decision to prioritize withdrawal over you know over over supporting the afghan government security forces and what's extraordinary to me though is as you alluded to this earlier victor i'd love to hear what you think about this i mean i can i can understand That the American people, after three administrations in a row, say, hey, it's not worth it that the American people demand an an end of America's involvement in the war. But what I don't understand is why two administrations empowered the Taliban on the way out and weakened the Afghan government and security forces and essentially threw them under the bus on our our way out, delivering psychological blows. And Victor is, is a student of war and warfare going back to ancient times. And, and, and we know, as military historians, that the moral is to the physical as of 10 to 1, as Napoleon observed. And the psychological blows that we delivered to the Afghans on our way out were actually, you know, actually fell much harder than the physical blows that the Taliban could have delivered. And so I, this is what this is what I lament, Peter and, and Victor. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, but I, I think it's just it's an extraordinary example of self-defeat. Self-defeat yeah, yeah. based on self-delusion, I think. Well, I think we Victor. got in,
2: when we got in, we looked at people like Massoud and various groups, tribal
1: groups, and we said you...
0: Massoud was uh, the leader of the Northern Alliance who was a, Alliance. a good guy, broadly yeah, speaking.
1: He was. Yeah. I mean, he he was killed through. on September 10th, 2001. And During yeah. Yeah. That,
2: that macabre blowing, uh, camera that blew up. So my point is that we knew that there was a blueprint to, part- to help, people in an indigenous fashion. We didn't say to Massoud, we want you to have a gender flag over your tent. We want to know the gender ratio. And if you're a guy, if we ever have to lift you out, we'll make sure that we have culturally sensitive food like we're doing now. So we weren't there yet. We were trying to find common allies. And maybe we could have had a coalition of people. Afghanistan was never going to be a centrally governed country like a a nation state. But there there was a methodology. And I don't know where that went. But I will say that there's something I, I agree with HR, but when you go overseas and you talk to foreign people, diplomats or journalists, they will tell you that a CentCon commander has become a Roman proconsul. And that we are so powerful, we have so much that the military is training people essentially because they the, the foreign governments go to the military because they know they have the clout to do stuff. Rescue people, get people in, call the president. So insidiously. The military wants it both ways. They want to say, you know what, we, don't, we didn't give any advice, we just do what we're told. But they're not, they're setting policy. And if anybody doubts that, I have no confidence in the veracity of Bob Woodward. But if 5% of what he said was true and what we see General Milley doing, essentially he's making policy. He's calling the opposition leader, the Speaker of the House, and then they're, they're plotting political strategy. He's calling the Chinese head of state, if that were true, and he's, he's plotting not only political strategy, but he's telling the enemy that we are weak right now because we are, democracy is a mess, quote unquote. So I, one thing I liked about HR's work on Vietnam was he was saying this as I understood it, that there is a crisis of confidence in the post Vietnam military. And whether it was the values or whether it was the uh, bureaucracy, We didn't fight that war in a way that we won on the battlefield, but there were strategic and tactical decisions that nullified that victory. And we've got to remake this military. And we did. And so by the time of the first Gulf War, HR was uh, the victor in the biggest tank battle since the Yom Kippur War. That was amazing. We did that. And all I'm suggesting is, insidiously, incrementally, something has happened to the U.S. military's top brass. I don't know if it's the New York-Washington nexus. I don't know if it's this retirement uh, progression where they they retire and go right to Raytheon or the corporate I don't know what it is. Something is wrong, and we have to recalibrate it. And this is why I'm worried. This is the first time in my life when I talk to conservative students, conservative universities. This is the the basis of support for the U.S. military as it is for the CIA and FBI.
1: And the effect, Victor, of a lost war is, is yeah, going to be yeah, is going to, is potentially no, devastating. No, no, no and, I agree and, with you. But, but and, and,
2: you know, is, I, I this would this just time, say... I, HR, let, let me yeah, tell this is the yeah. first time in my lifetime that I've seen people email me, talk to me in southern Fresno County, all over the country, and these are the people for big defense budget. These are the people who fight the left and don't want to disarm. They want to, you know, every time we have to have and they are saying, what the hell happened? I'm done. And yeah, that's, uh, okay. that's, that's, I, th- that's I think there,
1: there is an element of misdiagnosis here, I would say, though. So I, I think that part of the problem with the professional military ethic, if maybe we should use that term and, and the potential corruption of it uh, is how politicians are, will, are trying to drag the military into partisan politics and, and then undermine military professionalism in a way that could be devastating.
0: Wait, wait, an, an wait, example, wait, 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 and, 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 wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm going to give you nobody,
1: an example of that. I'm nobody dra- nobody
2: dragged, nobody dragged, I can quote, I won't do it because of, because of perceptions and, and politeness, but I can quote verbatim, the spontaneous edi- ed- editorialization of 11 four-star generals. And I'll mention one. Nobody said to Mike Hayden, a four-star general, that he had to tweet that Trump voters uh, that were unvaccinated should go back to Afghanistan. Nobody forced, put a gun to Hayden's head and said, you know what, General, uh, you, don't, you really should put a picture of Auschwitz and compare the co- so-called cages to your president's poll. That's what he tweeted. We're having people in a way that we have not seen since Douglas MacArthur and Curtis Lemay and Edwin Walker, and remember, the Uniform Court of Justice was not just in response to World War II and the 16 million people who were civilians who came through, and they didn't want, you know, uh, complete the military. But i just want to say one last thing. But I just, was, you mentioned was,
0: MacArthur and Lemay and Edwin Walker as disrespect for the Commander in Chief. Is that yes? Okay, yes. sorry. And right, so go go this ahead.
2: was it was signed in 1950, and I think May, and it was ratified in '51 at the height of the McCarthy period, the Cold War, when we have generals weighing in. And finally, we said, we do not like that. And so Article 88 was part of that huge corpus. They were gonna, it wasn't gonna be articles of war anymore. It was gonna be Navy, Air Force, you know, Marine. every branch of the service was gonna have a uniform code of conduct. And there are a lot of things about officers. And we didn't have that for a while. We had the occasional crank, or we had during the Clinton uh uh, Bush, we'd have admirals sign petitions, but we never have had this many retired officers explicitly, explicitly talking about their commander-in-chief as, and I'm quoting directly, as one said, he's a Mussolini I've never heard that before. So they hey, 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 Victor, Victor, they're, they're doing you, they're doing spontaneous. Nobody's got a gun to their
1: head. No, as, as, you, as you know, as an historian, right, nothing is unprecedented. Right. <laughs> I think that I, I would say that the military became quite partisan you know, during our civil war. Probably more 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 partisan well, it than was now, but when half of the culture. officer corps defected to fight for slavery. I know you know that. We, we have the we had the revolt of the admirals in 1947. You mentioned MacArthur. Right. But that's yeah, why but there we have been other
2: oh that's why we had this code. It was saying the articles that's, of war didn't work. We're going to re re the whole military, and we didn't really have this to this extent.
1: So it takes what it takes. It takes it takes really the military to jealously guard his professional military ethic, yeah. as you are suggesting. Yeah. I think that that responsibility doesn't stop upon retirement as you subge- suggested. I agree with you. That's why I don't sign group letters. That's why I don't endorse candidates. That's why I don't engage in this kind of partisan vitriolic discourse that is dominating uh, uh, today and obscuring really so, and preventing substantive discussions of the issues we're facing. It's r- why I wrote the book I wrote, right? The other the other aspect of this, though, is is our, our political leaders have to take on more responsibility. And the example I was going to give you is Mark Milley did not call Speaker Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi called Mark Milley and and, and surreptitiously taped that phone conversation. Yes, I know that. And then and then leaked that for partisan purposes. Yeah. So she was dragging the military in to, to partisan politics. I, I Donald. Have- I think there are examples of Donald Trump doing having similar behavior. Yeah. I think when Vice President Biden, remember the quote that he said as a candidate, when his candidate Biden, hey, if Trump doesn't leave, the military is going to march. I mean, no, this is this uh, is, he, is he trying to evoke, you know, the same danger to our mo- democracy, that Cromwell presented uh, in, in well, the 17th century. I think I, so think I, the, I think I think it is on both sides. It to is preserve our professional military. But, but the,
2: the difference is the military has a higher responsibility these are the political clouds. They're not the political class. That's what politicians do. They try to force people. They try to lobby. They try to do everything. But the military was a bastion against that. And, well, the-
1: and, and, and I'll tell you, I think I think the, you know, the, the idea that, that the, the professional military ethic has, has, has fragmented and is in shambles is overstated. Do we have work to do? And to, yes, to you strengthen do. it. Right. But I do agree with you.
2: Let me just finish so very quickly. and I promise very quickly. Mark, and, and correct the record. When Mark Milley said he apologized for Mark the- Milley's chairman of the Joint Chiefs, yes, when he apologized the- for the so called photo op and the improper behavior of Trump, and by the way, the Inspector General of the Interior Department found nothing that was. This is
0: when President Trump um, uh, walks across Lafayette
2: Square. Yes, and, the, and, and, and okay, so we know he did. Okay. And the immediately, police immediate- protesters yes, are. immediately we heard in the press that Mark Milley was talking about resigning. Now, where did that come from? That came from a leak from his office that he was considering resigning as a virtue signal. And remember, Bob Woodward did not, whether he, somebody talked to him. So we have the, we have this leak game
1: going on where everybody. Which, just, I, which I think, which I think is a travesty. Like yeah. I, I just got to tell you, so I, I just we, want to tell you that Bob, if, if you read a Bob Woodward book, please don't believe it. I mean, I I, I've that. seen I, the I read, reactions. No, I, I know, mean, please I, don't believe it because, about, you know, it, there may seen. be an element of fact in there. But yes. everything is bent and twisted to get the headlines yes. he got in the last I couple know, of days. I, right? I know that. I've re, reviewed the
2: the pernicious nature of his methodology. But what I'm saying is, there were people to the call. So he's going to have. What I'm getting at is, whether they're doing it anticipation or they're preemptory or whatever. We have a politicized military who we'll hand in glove with
0: the no, no, liquid. no,
1: no, no, we don't. Yeah, we no, we, do. we, we don't. Do. OK. Oh, come on. No, we do. Hold on. That's We're going around. to do a
0: separate show. This is this is this is <laughs> all I'm saying. <laughs> wow, this is great stuff. I'm thinking great stuff. We'll do a separate show on this back to Afghanistan <laughs> to close it out because Victor yep. tells us he has an appointment later this afternoon. I had to change my oil to change. Yes, <laughs> I know. I you, Now all the viewers know that you consider changing the oil in your car more important than talking to me. Well, probably the right decision. Listen to this, here's the equipment we left behind in Afghanistan, more than 200 airplanes and helicopters, some 75,000 military vehicles, and over half a million rifles, machine guns, shotguns, howitzers. Can the Taliban use some of that material while selling off the rest of it? Have we just armed and financed one of this nation's principal enemies, HR? Hell, yes, we
1: have. And you know, Victor's written about this. But what I just want to point out again is this is what happens when you surrender to a terrorist organization. I, I mean, agree. it's as if we're acting like there's no you know, there's no consequence for this. I mean, it's it is it, appalling. It's inexcusable. Uh, but but it, but it, this is what happens when you prioritize retreat and withdraw over doing what's sensible. Uh, for, for our security and for, and for the defense of our Question nation? Question of
0: magnitude, just for a layman here. I've read reports that the material and equipment we left behind runs to in value to tens of billions of dollars. It, it, uh, but I've also read reports saying, oh, don't worry about it. Without spare parts, I, all that I, stuff will I, become I, useless very quickly. No, you it, go on the website, you go on the
2: DOD, what, a lot of them have been actually, you can't find the information. They have been uh, rendered inert. And there's a big debate the, whether the $85 billion represented a 20-year aggregate investment that incorporated training costs, and
0: it wasn't just a right. simple, hardware, so or the I'm simple just, hardware. I'm just, as a military question yes. to a layman like me, okay, what did we answer. just give them? What did I we just you, give them?
2: We gave them 80% of the dollar amount we've given Israel in the history of the Jewish state. Everybody says too much. 80%. We've given Israel about $105 billion in today's dollars. Okay. Training, whatever you want to call the actual input. And by the way, when we buy weapons, often the training is incorporated in the cost. So when the military says, or somebody says, well, it wasn't just hardware, there was training. So what? We have, we're fighting right now whether we can afford $14 billion for this huge Gerald Ford class carrier. Now, I have, if people think it's a dinosaur. I think there's advantages to it, but we could have built six of them. We're having a national debate whether we can afford the $90 million, uh, F-35. We could have made, we could have bought 900 of them with them, if that's the, the key. So what I'm saying is it's a huge amount. We've already had journalists report that some of this material is showing up in Iran. You'll have Chinese and Russians that'll scan it and see if there's anything worth reverse engineering. HR is right. It's going to be a terrorist mart. People are going to come and buy, use it. It's a disaster. But, Uh, And he's right. This is what happens when you don't achieve victory. And by the way, the Soviet Union that was defeated left with more order than we did uh, in 1980. And that was something that that's the first thing I thought when I saw that tank column of Soviets leaving in 80 on the visuals. I am the last tank commander, you know, leaving. And that was an incompetent military, not a brilliant military like ours. So it was a disaster. And uh, I, I don't know where, how how you rectify that, but we have to, we have to restore deterrence. That's all. In your
0: job as national security advisor, HR, one of the people, one of the sets of constituencies to whom you had to pay attention was our allies, Walter Russell Mead on the international repercussions. This is the Wall Street Journal a few days ago, quote, Arab countries are worried, India and Israel depressed, China and Russia are scornful, close quote. H.R., how bad is this? How it's, badly? It's really, did we just... It's really
1: bad. It's really bad. I mean, I you know, Peter, I, I don't think they think we're serious people anymore. Right. I mean, you, you had we de- the, the, the administration declared America's back. Right. And remember all the people who were outraged about Donald Trump's mean tweets about allies. Well, you know, I mean, Donald Trump didn't leave behind, you know, the, the, the citizens uh, of our allies into a ready made hostage crisis. In a country that's controlled by the Taliban and Siraj Hikani, one of the most odious, uh, brutal people on earth, who specializes in hostage taking of Westerners, and and by the way, you know mass murder attacks of innocents. So of course we have a credibility issue, and and if and and Victor has been alluding to this. I mean, if if deterrence is capability times will, I think our our allies and our our enemies and and our rivals and our adversaries believe that. That the will factor is down to about zero, mm-hmm. and and you know this what this reminds me of, it reminds me uh, uh, except worse of the unenforced red line in Syria in 2014. Remember um, when when uh, after how after that I think you could draw a direct line. Give uh, us the background. President Obama is, said. President Obama said that that if if the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons to commit mass murder, that's a red line, and we'll take military action. We did nothing uh, after the murder of a, a thousand. Uh, innocents and and you know nearly 500 children uh, and and in fact uh, you know one of these negotiations actually invited the Russians in. I think the Russians concluded, hey, this administration is not serious, and that led directly to the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. I believe it also led to the building of islands in the South China Sea and the weaponization of those islands. Hmm. So I think what we have seen is the dissipation of deterrence based on our, our lack of credibility and the belief that we don't have the will to sustain efforts abroad or to respond to even the most brazen forms of aggression. Last last question. I, I would just I would just say very quickly that
2: the problem would even worse is that when a country is strong, militarily strong and it seems weak, then the loss of deterrence is magnified. You know, Britain and France had a better army. They had better weaponry than Germany. And the Germans kept thinking, if, if I were them, I would have, thought I would have gone into the Saarland when we were in Poland and won. So Our enemies look at this huge military and they look at this country and they think, wow, they have all these advantages and yet their crisis of will and so allows them to have no confidence in themselves. Last
0: last question, gentlemen, if I may. A data point from recent history and then a quotation. Here's the recent history. The United States suffered a national humiliation with the fall of Saigon in 1975 but in the next decade and a half, we recovered so completely that in 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. 1991, the Soviet Union goes out of existence. We won the Cold War. That's the point from recent history. Here's the quotation. This is Yoram Hazoni, the Israeli scholar, who wrote an article. He cited the writings of a medieval Arab scholar who argued that successful civilizations possess asabaya, which can be translated morale, self-confidence, cohesion. And then Hazoni writes, cohesion is what the Taliban have. Cohesion is what America has lost, close quote. Can we recover or does what just happened in Afghanistan prove that the United States, the West itself, represents a spent civilizational force? Victor? Well, I
2: think we can recover, and I happen to be confident. but we have to remember that what the Romans call luxus or affluence and leisure are just as deadly as poverty and want. And we, we're a very affluent, wealthy society. We're disunited. We're going back to the idea, contrary to Martin Luther King, that race is now suddenly essential rather than incidental to who we are. We've got $30 trillion in debt. We've got an alienated uh, working middle class that has been the losers of globalization. So Military power is a reflection of economic, cultural, and social unity and robustness. And while we're much stronger than any other country, uh, geometrically, we're not increasing at the rate of, say, economic power that China is. But this is why I remain confident. If you go back through civilizations and you look at the stuff of strength, it's fuel. We're the largest fuel, fuel, gas and oil. It's education. 18 out of the top 20 universities in terms of research, science, math, are in America. In terms of food, we're the largest uh, food producer in terms of value. Constitutionality. We have the longest constitutional system in the world, 233 years. So we have all of it. All we need is a, a regeneration of the elite establishment class. And somehow we got this idea, it's a bipartisan, that we have redefined elite as somebody who has a cattle brand, Harvard, Yale, Stanford without ever asking themselves what they're doing at those places. Or we're saying that you're in the right zip code. or But that establishment is like the British establishment in the late 1930s that was completely bankrupt. The Tory leadership under Stanley Baldwin and Chamberlain took somebody like Churchill to tell the Britons, we're strong. We always were. You just didn't know. We're strong right now. We just need a Reagan or JFK or somebody to say, you know what, we're going to redefine what it is to be an elite if you're 30 something and you've got a student debt and you're majoring and you keep going I think that maybe you want we've got why not look at this plumber over here or this tractor mechanic they're essential to this country but we somehow gotten this idea that that a degree or a particular attitude or a particular cursus and norm is going to make you something without actual you know performance and I think we're gonna have to go back and, and say to ourselves we got to start back where we were from the original founding idea of what this country is about, a constitutional republic, small government, strong middle class, economic autonomy of people, and unity, where everybody, this is the only multiracial democracy that's ever been tried. Everyone that else is an autocracy, the Soviets, the Ottomans, the Romans, and they had to use a degree of coercion to prevent themselves ending up like Yugoslavia. We try it, Brazil's trying it, not very well. India's trying it, not very well. But why would we forsake that idea when we were making so much progress? So we gotta go back to what was working.
0: HR, uh, could I, I, could, I could I? put a slight twist on the question for you? The freshmen are returning here to Stanford where all three of us have our positions at the Hoover Institute, It doesn't matter Stanford, but across the country. What do you say to a kid who comes to knock on your door? I happen to know one of your many virtues is that you you always make time to talk to the kids. I don't know how you find the time, but you do. What do you say to somebody who says, General McMaster, I could go to when I graduate from this place. I can go get a job in Silicon Valley and make a ton of loot, and maybe make a difference of some kind. Maybe help build a real company. But I'm kind of considering going into the army. I'm not sure it's, it's worth it anymore. What
1: do you say to that kid? I would say it's absolutely worth it. It's worth it because of the, the less tangible rewards of service. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're not going to make a lot of money, but what you'll be is you'll be part of a, a team that is, that is committed to a mission bigger than yourself. Uh, to defend our nation. And I believe if you're engaged against jihadist terrorist organizations, the enemies of all humanity, I think, you know, American warriors are warriors and humanitarians because they have been fighting along this modern day frontier between barbarism uh, and civilization. Uh, They're also be part of a military that demonstrates its combat readiness, its combat effectiveness in a way that deters conflict and, and helps preserve, you know, the freedoms that we all enjoy. And they'll be part of an organization in which the man or woman next to them is willing to give everything, including their own lives for them. That is difficult to replicate anywhere. They'll be part of the warrior ethos, uh, an ethos that, that rests on a common commitment to principles like honor, courage, self-sacrifice, and, and in what they accomplish together as a team that team will grow together in, 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 uh, with, with bonds of mutual trust and respect and really affection. So I would say, heck yes, join the United States military. And I was just at West Point this past week, and I got to interact with a lot of cadets. I got to see my, my old rugby team knock the hell out of, a, you know, of what's supposed to be a, a rugby powerhouse of uh, Notre Dame of Ohio. And, and when you look at those young people, who have gone to West Point to volunteer to serve in time of war, you can't help but feel confident about the future of of our country. When you meet young soldiers of of this much pilloried generation who self-select to come into the U.S. military, you cannot help but be confident about our future. And, and, And I would just add, Peter, to your observations about the 70s, you know. Hey, how about adding stagflation to that picture? You know how? How about adding you know the you know, the the Carter so-called malaise speech uh, to to that picture? And and you mentioned the you know the hostage crisis, which put kind of an exclamation point uh, on, on, on a on a decade of pessimism. Also, a decade in which the Soviet Union appeared confident, right? Yes, that's you know, right. Their 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 totalitarian authoritarian system was superior to ours. But you know what? I, I often quote Wang An, a Chinese immigrant to the United States who founded Wine Computers. And he said, you know, America, you know, sometimes of his adopted nation, he said, we don't always live up to our our values. But what we have is we have a mechanism for self-correction below the the level of revolution. Because guess what? In our democracy, we have agency. And what makes me kind of most disappointed in much of the popular discourse today is this sense among, among Americans that we can't do anything about the problems and the obstacles we're facing. Hell, yes, we can do something. We can demand better. We all get a say in in how we're governed. We can convene. You know, we can convene Americans uh, for respectful, meaningful discussions about the challenges we face and, and how to overcome them. And, and I think that's, that's what we endeavor to do at the Hoover Institution. And I think it's a very, very important service at this time. And it has to happen in civics organizations and in churches and in communities across, across the country and boys and girls clubs. And I think we ought to make a concerted effort to restore our confidence in our common identity as Americans and our confidence in, in, our, in the great gift the gifts that we have as Americans in our democratic principles and institutions and processes, rule of law, freedom of speech, because, you know, we have it. I've been to places, Peter. Victor's been to Iraq with me places, you know, where, where, where that doesn't exist. It's not a pretty picture. And so as we are lamenting really the catastrophe in Afghanistan, we still, I think, ought to take a moment to recognize the regenerative capacity we have in this country and also to acknowledge you know, the, the great promise of America. And if we owe our servicemen and women who made the ultimate sacrifice in Afghanistan anything, I think it is to live well and to cherish the freedoms that they fought to preserve. And and I, I think we can do that. And if we do it well among us older guys here, you know, that, that we can maybe help build a better future for generations to come.
0: General H.R. McMaster and Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation I'm Peter Robinson.